Okay, this is Devin Dots. It's a podcast with Mike. Uh, oh, oh, Scott. Sorry, I, I've been out of practice. Yeah, and Larry. Uh, Scott, you just got back from Soros money. Where's my check? Yeah, check, check, check. Oh, I, I told him to give it all to Larry. Larry Krasner, Larry Krasner, yeah. not, not our Larry. Larry Krasner uh, got all our Soros money for this month, and we are not happy about it. Um, well, speak for yourself. Well, look, well, if, I if, wanted some. As one of my reclaim, uh, my one of my reclaim comrades put it: if, if billionaires are going to be influencing elections, uh, let's let's uh, have them influenced it our way. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I would just like to be influenced a little bit uh, by George Soros. Um, but all right, so Scott, you just got back from being on location in Puerto Rico researching Correct. this episode. Let's go with that. Um, so Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, depending on your dialect. All right. And uh, there's a lot going on there. Uh, not so not so great. Um, they are a victim of colonization. And this is really up our alley in terms of socialism and what that means to us because— uh, in a lot of ways, Puerto Rico has been a victim of capitalism. Well, in every way. Um, I, I, I mean, I think what's interesting about Puerto Rico is how invisible it is to most Americans. Uh, even people who are really hip to the ideas of globalization, neoliberalism, colonization, they are, you know, they're focused on issues in countries very far from here, and they're not really... I mean, plenty of people are, but a lot of people are interested in, you know, Palestine, or they're interested sure. in, um, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and the neo-colonization that goes on in those countries, and their their focus is far afield, and uh, if you really want to understand uh, a great case study in neoliberalism and, um, uh, you know, the colonialism, I mean... The exploitations of capitalism. Uh, you, you just got to look right here. We have, a, we have a colony. We have several colonies, but um, Puerto Rico is the largest, it is the one that I would say is, pro- well, I mean, affects the most people. So obviously the effects are more severe. It is, it has been the one where there's been the most resistance and pushback over time. Uh, places like that we have in the South Pacific, they're very small populations. Oftentimes there, there's a lot of ambivalence about the U.S. relationship, but in, in some ways it's been beneficial to them. And so there's not as much, you know, anxiety about it in some of those places. In other places, there has been. Each case is different. Um, Puerto Rico, from the very start, really didn't want to be part of the United States. Mm-hmm. It, it, so to go back and give a quick survey of the history, uh, in 1898, the United States and Spain fought a war. Um, one of the major um, causes of the war was... Um, the independence movement in Cuba. There was also an independence movement in the Philippines and in Puerto Rico. The Puerto Rico one had largely been su- suppressed. The major activity around that happened in the 1860s. Um, this is, of course, you know, long after the great wave of Spanish colonial rebellions, the Bolivarian revolutions. Uh, those Originally, those islands did not really participate in those liberal revolutions because their economy was based on serving Spain, and they were like, what are we going to do without Spain? That hadn't really changed much, but uh, lots of new people had moved to those islands, and the situation it, it had it, the situation had changed vis-a-vis what Spain was by that point. Yeah, and some people in Puerto Rico wanted out, and they they had an active independence movement, just like the Cubans. The Cubans 
by the time of the Spanish-American War were actually actively engaged in a military insurrection. And so there was all this, let's go free the Cubans and... Uh, we just got it into was cover a for general fight for it fought into it, it folded into the manifest destiny thing like this is our backyard and we'll liberate them and we'll benefit from it is that and of the course Monroe doctrine that are we have the right to police the western hemisphere or is it the yeah it's it's yeah. connected for sure i mean and we and there's definitely been at several points european attempts to uh either restore lost colonies uh in the wake of the bolivarian revolutions and the wake of the haitian revolution in the wake of the Mexican Revolution, you know, that, that we opposed diplomatically or, and were pretty successful in keeping Europeans from reestablishing themselves. And so Spain was probably the most glaring example of it. Cuba is gigantic, yep. lots of people, uh, and a big economic prize 90 <clears throat> miles off the coast of right. Florida. So we got involved for uh, very selfish reasons. We sold it as, you know, we're going to liberate it. So we take over these areas after winning the war. Very common American theme. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it was a different situation in the three most populated areas that we got control of. Oh, boy. So was it ever. The Philippines fought us tooth and nail from the start. Brutal, bloody, horrible repression happened there. Atrocity a, after atrocity. A, a story for a different day. Uh, Puerto Rico is a much smaller place, much more compact. We invaded it. The guy who invaded it didn't really, uh, he wasn't our our best and brightest military leader. So there was a sort of like a, a an impasse that happened for a long period of time. Eventually we took over the island and, and we wound up getting it by accident because we didn't, we weren't even asking for it. It didn't even occur to us. But in Spain's initial offer, like, here, we'll give you all this. And we wound up with Puerto Rico. Um, Cuba, no, so it's interesting because what happened then we imposed these colonial governments in all three places. And Cuba was independent, and you know, with an asterisk, of course, because we put the plot amendment into their constitution and we dominated every public utility and, and yada, yada, yada. But they were you know, officially independent as of 1902. And I think politically it was very difficult for us to wage that war and then not give them their independence because that was the whole point. Uh, I also think practically we would not have been able to hold Cuba without a great cost of life. And it wasn't far away like the Philippines. Reporters could easily travel down there. The American public would know about it. And by that point, we weren't, you know, we were, you had to be somewhat sensitive to just brutalizing people who shared a, you know, these people share a common European heritage. So it would be a different thing than killing people who have an Asian heritage to the American public at the time, right? So, And in those 60 years, it's not like they didn't become a vassal state that was just right. here we to serve capitalist interests right. and the mafia at that right. point. So so why why do all that? Other, exactly. Yeah. We can look like we're saviors, and it, it was a great thing. It, we can make them seem like they have a government. Right. And still profit. So Puerto Rico is different. Puerto Rico is smaller. It's more compact. It's a little bit easier to control. And we just held it. And there was no really even talk of making it independent. From the very start, uh, the military governors uh, established a, an English-only policy for all official documents. In the schools, class, like immediately, classes were taught entirely in English to a population that spoke no English. So the dropout rates went you know, really high. All of a sudden, there was a huge disparity between you know, the white people from North America who had come down and settle and the people who had been living there all this time, coupled with a complete collapse of their economy because their economy was geared around sending agricultural products produced in Puerto Rico to Spain. 
Now, those agricultural products were largely commodities, uh, cash crops. Like uh, there had been a chocolate industry at one point that was wiped out in the 1700s by a hurricane. There was a sugar industry and a coffee industry and a lot of other agricultural products as well. Puerto Rico has a long growing season. It's got lots of arable land, different kind of climates. It used to have a reputation for producing really, really excellent coffee. Uh, that it still does. Uh, Puerto Rican coffee is still very marketable, but that industry collapsed. Um, and the reason why it collapsed relates to, uh, well, the reason why all the, the diversity of their agricultural economy kind of went away is entirely based in U.S. policies imposed on them for our purposes. So the sugar industry, uh, Domino Sugar was the company. Um, still is, right? Uh, I don't. I think they're still around. Yeah, well, they're still around. I don't know where. I don't know where their holdings are and how they're organized. But <clears throat> so they were developing the sugar industry. It was a, a lot of money in sugar, particularly after World War One, because the area, the sugar that was consumed in Europe was, as a result of Napoleon's uh, push, sugar beets. They grew tons hmm. and tons of sugar beets in northeastern France. So after you spend, you know, was it four years? You know, dropping artillery and poison gas all over this land. You know, that there was no sugar industry in Europe anymore, and so the Caribbean and you know Central America, the, the, the tropics of the Western Hemisphere, those sugar industries became really important, and we created these sugar empires in Cuba and Puerto Rico, and in Puerto Rico because we had complete control over it, we eliminated almost every other bit of agricultural activity that was happening. If sugarcane could be grown there, that's what we were growing there. And, um, you know, the, the, the growth of the sugar industry was actually put down the initial insurrections that were happening in the mountains because largely those were insurrections of people who were unemployed. So you have this sugar colony, and it's making lots of money. Eventually, you know, like all commodity markets, it, the, the conditions change and a decision is made to industrialize the economy. You know, we're going to bring heavy industry to Puerto Rico. We're going to do this by providing really great tax breaks for corporations. They're going to be encouraged to set up there. They can basically defer their federal income, their federal corporate taxes indefinitely. And that was the incentive. And it was, you know, it was, it was good because it brought jobs and economic activity. It was bad because, you know, the, the, all the goods and services were being paid for by, the workers and the corporations were just reaping all the public benefits. And that's a situation that continues to this day, even though the tax incentive structure has changed dramatically in a way that actually has caused many companies to leave and well, these jobs are mostly gone. So you have an entire generation that has been weaned off of wanting to do agricultural work because they're used to the comforts and higher standard of living provided by the industrial sector. And an agricultural economy that is mismanaged to say the least so coffee is a great case study of this coffee to pay a worker in puerto rico to harvest coffee for a day costs about 60 dollars to pay a worker in panama for the same labor costs six dollars so when they're competing in an open free trade environment right if you're selling commodity coffee it all goes into the same hoppers ground up but in bags sold in supermarkets you're not going to be able to even keep your head above water in that market. Right. It's just the profitability is really low. So the answer is to have specialty coffee, right? 
except that Coca-Cola owns the only industrial roaster on the island and they just want to do in the they just want to be in the commodity business. It serves their global needs. It doesn't serve the island's developmental needs. So it's if the people on the island had their say, they might run it differently, but they're not the ones calling the shots. Um, and that's been the situation for most of the history. So obviously not everyone in Puerto Rico was good with this. And there was a big movement in the early 20th century around the Puerto Rico Nationalist Party led by uh, Pedro Albizu Campos. And prior to World War II, this was a very powerful movement. They were involved in lots of insurrections. There were, you know, they would rise up and there'd be protests and there would be massacres and um, eventually kind of came to a head when the, another wing of, basically there was two wings of it. There was the let's rebel and fight for independence versus let's pursue the path pursued by the Philippines and Cuba. Let's go for reform and gradual emancipation. And that was um, really around the, the liberal party. A guy in the liberal party named Luis Munoz Marin broke off and formed the popular democratic party. And he's the guy, they call him the architect of the Commonwealth. He's the guy who sort of, you know, used the process of reform to create this weird Commonwealth status, which he then was able to, in that process, use it as a bludgeon to beat up on all political opposition. Um, at the time that Puerto Rico was granted this kind of nominal self-government in the early 1950s, um, the Nationalist Party really struck back, and they there was actually a military, another military insurrection, and they were just wiped out, and thousands of people were arrested without, you know, due process. People were executed without due process. Um, people who were not even part of the movement but had voted against Luis Munoz Marin were arrested and disappeared. So when you say it was brutal, not to cut you off, but when you say yeah. liberal, are we talking about American liberal or are we talking about classical libertarianism? So uh, I'm not clear on the exact nature of their politics. I know okay. that um, it probably would mirror America closer than Europe. Do you assume at that time um, but, those yeah. words, even in America, had slightly different meanings? Sir, yeah, but certainly. I, I think that the main, their main issue was autonomy and reform towards autonomy. So I, I'm not. It's people in Puerto Rico. They'll join parties based on the status question as much as other issues. Hmm. So there were people on the right and left around different status questions that might make common cause. Uh, but that party doesn't exist anymore. The Popular Democratic Party, which superseded it in that position, uh, I would say that, yeah, they, they traditionally tend to align closely to the Democratic Party in the United States, but it's not strictly like that because there are people in that party who affiliate nationally with the Republican Party but who favor the main, maintaining of the Commonwealth, the status quo. And there are people in the pro-statehood party who, are, who would identify as Democrats or Republicans. So there's it's a... The politics in Puerto Rico are separate from the politics in the United States. Um, broadly speaking, both of those parties could be classified today as, you know, they're kind of neoliberal centrist parties. Yes. Um, there are other parties. Um, so the Nationalist Party still exists. It's kind of an insignificant thing. Uh, the larger party pushing for independence, I think, is the Puerto Rico Independence Party. Um, there are obviously a, a number of leftist parties um, you know, there's a, a Puerto Rican Communist Party. There are anarchist groups. There are all kinds of li smaller groups. But the main... Splitters. The main two... There, it's a, basically a three-party 
system in the way that Britain's a three-party system. It's really a two-party system, and then there's this third party. That kind of like sides. depends on what the issue yeah. is. Yeah, and not even as strong as the Liberal Democrats are in Britain. It's a, okay. very, it's a much smaller thing. So the generation that was really fighting for independence, you know, that, that idea went away. And the people, the baby boomers and people younger, really kind of go with this either commonwealth or statehood uh, question. And it's only very recently among younger people that the question of independence has risen again. And I think it's, it has to do with the realization that, well, we don't have local control. And the question, you know, the, there's many different perspectives on, well, if we just go independent now, will we just become another Haiti? What do we do well, to get ourselves well positioned? Does statehood solve the problem of colonialism? Right. These are complex questions. But to get back to just the survey real quick before we get into those... Citizenship was granted in 1917 for the sole purpose of being able to draft people to war. There you go. The relationship of Puerto Rico uh, to the United States vis-a-vis their citizenship is that they can come to the United States anytime they want to escape the conditions on the island if they find it to be unbearable. They have all the rights of an American citizen once they step onto the mainland of the United States. So despite the fact that... um, you know, they're brutally exploited in Puerto Rico. They can't get the same kind of welfare and, and public assistance benefits. I mean, that on you, the island, on the island that they could get if they come to the, main, the mainland, which they have full access to. They have full access to. But then you have to leave your homeland. And then you and... have to leave your homeland. But it ta- it's sort of like a pressure release valve in that whenever things get really bad on the island, you just get a diaspora. In the wake of the, the independence struggle that happened at the time of the Commonwealth in the early 50s. And there was an economic crisis along with that massive wave of immigration to North America from Puerto Rico. So it's whenever you have a crisis, people flee the island. And right now what's going on there is people are fleeing the island. There is, um, you know, $72 billion upwards of that in public debt that was imposed upon them by really corrupt, horrible local uh, officials who, personally profited off the debt deals. Of course. Um, you know, the associations with hedge funds and, and lending banks. Um, they have since, those, some of those same individuals have since been appointed to the Financial Control Board, board mm-hmm. which is known as the Junta. That is basically putting, it's basically exposing what a lie self-government really has been all this time because they are ensuring that the local government in Puerto Rico prioritizes payments of their obligations to the debt uh, to, to their lenders over anything else. And they've imposed harsh, dramatic austerity cuts. One of the most high-profile uh, examples of this is the cuts to the public university system, the ending of subsidies for the students who attend, um, the you know just cutting of the budget to the university itself. And the uh, students have organized, and they are on strike, and they have blockaded the, the campuses. I mean, there are barricades. It's like... Not quite as colorful as the French Revolution uh, barricades, but but it's a start. But there are chairs mounted. I mean, they, they've got the entrances blocked. They're extraordinarily extraordinarily well disciplined, and like these are not like lefty radical bomb throwing anarchists. These are business majors. These are like yeah. these are people from middle class backgrounds. These are people who just see this obvious rampant criminality, and it has radicalized them. And they are standing up and doing what they can to fight back. And obviously some of them do have a more advanced political analysis and some of them are radicals, but it's a much broader, it's a much broader coalition than what you might expect to see 
if an American university was barricaded with yeah, the certainly, flag. it would just be the the Antifa or whoever. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not like that at all. It's it's mainstream young people. Uh, That's who, encouraging. They they see it for what it is, and they don't like it. Some of them are fighting while they're there, while also thinking, "Hey, I'm going to go move in with my cousin in Dallas." Because your options as an individual in Puerto Rico don't look that great. If you have a promising future ahead of you, you might jump ship. And not to speculate, but do you think that the uh, release valve idea of immigration between us and Puerto Rico, do you think that was an externality they didn't plan on? Or do you think it was built into the plan that if things got so bad, they, we would just get a, a small wave of immigration and then things would settle back down and we'd continue to capitalize on them? No, I don't think it was even that conscious. I think they needed soldiers for the war and it was just this is hey guys join up you get all these perks over there you know let's go you know fight the bosh but i think um you know it certainly worked it it certainly worked out that way i think it's an unintended consequence is my my guess and that's totally just a guess and i i say that a lot of times too when i complain about american welfare snap program how it limits uh what people can get it's a it's unintended externalities that sometimes create poverty traps or otherwise with uh, these types of... Well, welfare state, things like that, actually were very consciously, intentionally attempts to stave off revolution. That was... Oh, oh, to stave... Yeah. That was how, in the wake of 1917, this is how the Democratic Party sold their essentially, you know, social Democrat type program to the American voters and to the establishment. It's like, look, you could have a choice. Pay them a little bit of money, give them some food, like, let's give them food, shelter, clothing, or... They're going to come for your head, and the same thing with the push for housing yeah. in the '30s is a way to absolutely. But uh, is your washroom breeding Bolsheviks? You better get Scott <laughs> tissue. I, I I do, and it's not that it makes it any better in the situation. But when the negative externalities, when people are getting hurt, but they weren't built into the law purposefully, it gives me a little bit more hope for humanity. Well, I think right. Never attribute to malice. It could be attributed it, to incompetence. A right, hundred million but percent. The, the bottom line here is that we. You know, the, the popular perception of Puerto Rico is that it's a bunch of people on welfare and it's a drag on us. And look at all these poor people down there. That That's what we're told. Right. But in reality, we are extracting, I think it was like a trillion dollars a year between 20, 2000 and 2014, just as like return on investments on, um, what are they called, uh, fixed assets in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And then when the manu- in the manufacturing sector, they're just extracting billions and billions of dollars. And what's happening is that, you know, the, they're really bad at collecting their taxes, for one thing. That's they're just inefficient key. and corrupt and mismanaged. Caribbean Greece. But they, I think there was a number of like $30 billion of their budget was provided for from corporate taxes, $38 billion from personal income taxes. Jeez. And if you look at the disparities between the money extracted by the multinationals off the island versus the money they pay to people on the island... And then, of course, the Jones Act, which I think Larry could probably talk about in better detail, where all the trade is severely restricted through four uh, mainland United States ports, ships that have to be flagged from those ports. It drives the cost of all the basic consumer goods up through the roof. It limits consumer choice. People are really obliged by the fact that they no longer live on self-sufficient agricultural land, but now work in, live and work in cities and they're obliged to, to live on consumer goods, mm-hmm. and their choice is limited, the prices are high, and they import about 80% of their food. And so there are some, obviously, people who are, no, who, I mean, people are not dumb. They, they look at the, all the agricultural land, and there are efforts among some educators to teach kids about farming, and 
there's a push to get people to go back to the land, just like we have here with the organic gardening, mm-hmm. farmer's market. And biodynamic uh, co-ops, and et cetera. You, you do have some of that activity. Yeah. But just like here, it's, it's not easy to take a guy or a gal who grew up in a middle-class no. environment or even a working-class, urban, comfortable, suburban, you know, modern housing with all the stuff and say, go be a farmer. People underestimate, even in today's mechanized agricultural world, how difficult farming is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very it's difficult awful. work. And so, you know, it's it's tough to get people to be self-sufficient agriculturally. And it, and there's if there's no money with it because of the... The restrictions on trade and the the labor costs in a global market. It's, I mean, if the problems were easy, they would have already solved them. And, mm-hmm. and this is one of the things we're talking about with the inequality. Just to put it in context, uh, Puerto Rico is uh, 3.4 million people, which is larger than 21 of our current states. It's about the size of Mississippi population-wise. But just to give you an idea of that inequality, Mississippi gets $3.5 billion in Medicaid funding every year. Puerto Rico, same population, gets $373 million. It's it's a shockingly less number uh, that, that Puerto Rico gets. And their wages are lower and their prices are higher. So it, the, yeah. the need is actually greater. Yeah, the need is significantly greater in Puerto Rico with, with less funds to go around because of this, you know, this crazy distinction of what's a state and what isn't. Um just to give you an idea, the, the crime rate in uh, Puerto Rico is actually surprisingly low, mm-hmm. but they, they have a very high firearm death rate. So in a way, they're kind of like a state already. Um, it's, it's, in, it's also very localized. Yeah. I think that the, there are air, some really desperate areas in San Juan that have high crime. Uh, it's, just, it's not unlike the United States. There's I, certain inner city areas that are particularly high say, crime. It sounds like Philadelphia. Most places, it's like I felt like I was in the country. People were very friendly. Even the, the poorest people seemed to be basically content um, if they had a little bit, if they had what to eat and they had where to live. Um, there was a lot of abandoned uh, housing, though. I mean, the main thing I noticed were empty storefronts and empty homes. Do they have the same kind of issues that inner cities have with drugs in like uh, San Juan and the uh, impoverished areas? So there has been um, an influx in opium. Uh, yep, yeah, opiate. Yeah. I don't know if it's opioids or opiates or what, what particularly they're consuming. But I did hear people talk about a rise in drug use. And we did, you know, I saw some junkies panhandling on the street in Ponce. I didn't see it in San Juan. And I only, but I only, in San Juan, I was in the tourist area of old San Juan. Yeah, yeah. I was in this sort of like upscale areas by the coast. And then we did go down to Rio, Rio Pedras, which is where the University of Puerto Rico is, which it, I recommend anyone who, um, Finds himself in Puerto Rico, like I did for a wedding or for some. You know, if you're not if you're not going to sit there at some resort and you want to, you're actually going somewhere to visit. Rio Pedras is a really cool little area. It's around the college. There's all sorts of wonderful street art. If you want to see a punk rock show, that's probably where it is. I went to Puerto um, Rico in my home. And that figure said you would find the punk rock show on Puerto Rico. Yeah, I mean, we asked, yeah. <laughs> where do we go for this? There's a there's a lot of <laughs> great art in Puerto Rico. Uh, it really is. We, my wife and I, went for our honeymoon. Uh, for a little while, and it was beautiful. We went to El Yunque, but one of the things, not even just the uh, the street art, but we stayed at a hotel that was owned by nationals who were very politically active, and in each of the room they had uh, artists from the island uh, and a showcase on the walls, and they were very happy to explain who they were, and they, they had a real pride over their art scene, which I liked. That's oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, and I talked to a lot of people who are very politically aware, and, again, people from all sides of the political spectrum who have... 
achieve some basic consensus on, you know, financial control board, bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know, austerity course. cuts, bad. It, and Austerity never worked. Right. It's never worked anywhere. They are the Greece of, the, of America. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so a lot of the same dynamics are at play. Um, but I asked them again and again, like, I live in Philadelphia. You know, I am not a part of your struggle. I'm not living here. I'm not dealing with this. I, I don't want to just be a tourist who doesn't, you know, help in some way. If I like, is there something we can do here in the United States? And really, the, what I was told mainly was to, you know, read about it, learn about it, and tell others. And I think that the more that this consciousness of what what we're doing in Puerto Rico spreads, you know. I, I don't expect Americans to all of a sudden develop a conscience and decide we're going to stop mistreating people if it's benefiting us. But, you know, uh, I, I think that, you know, we can push there and slowly build that consciousness. And um, it's a good way to teach people about these issues. And hopefully, um, you know, uh, maybe we can elect an administration that won't basically just keep its foot on Puerto Rico's neck. I don't know what that looks like or how we get there, but um, uh, it, it's a tragic situation. But I didn't. I don't want anyone to think that my overwhelming impression was one of tragedy and horror. It's a wonderful place with beautiful people um, and terrible people too. I mean, it's just, just it's like it, everywhere. It's like anywhere else. There's great food. There's great weather. It's, it's I mean, there's all sorts of wonderful things about living there. There's people who are there and who aren't running away to Dallas or New York or wherever. They love their home. They love their culture. They love their community, and they want to preserve it. They want equitable treatment for the for the production of uh, their country. Right, and it's it's a wonderful place to live if you have a job. And so they want more people to be able to, you know, take care of themselves. And of course, some of them are starting to turn towards uh, socialism again, and and the younger people are looking more towards independence again. I think. Um, was that you your know. your perception that people were leaning more towards independence or were some people towards statehood? What, what, the people what? I spoke with, it was, I'd say the general, the only thing I would say that they all shared was um, a desire for more autonomy and self-determination. They may, I think ideally they all like independence or at least like a free association like you have in Micronesia. And I didn't, I, this is not a scientific survey. This is sure, anecdotally sure. who I spoke right. with. Sure. Um, but they generally, and some of them had a more sophisticated analysis of it said, well, you know, so if we're independent, then we're stuck with these local idiots who are, it'll just be a neo, neo colonization. What would be the point? I think, and if, and similarly, if they went to statehood, the fundamental economic realities wouldn't change. It would just be well. I the, mean, we they would they would be all of a sudden uh, more likely to get the the welfare. Well, they would get the welfare, but which they, would take some of the economic right. burden off. But it's not going to it's not going to change them overnight. Statehood. It would still well, be a place where wealth is extracted yes. and brought to other places. But even like a lot of the quite frankly, a lot of the mainland in the United States. Is oh like yeah, that, no, no, so, yeah. Right. no well, argue with that. When we talk about the debt issue, um, which is weighing them down heavily. It's seventy-two billion dollars, which which is a staggering amount of money. But on the other hand, that's what we pay for a handful of fighter jets. Yeah. I mean, we we could solve this problem easily. Yeah, just snap um, our fingers. 
but you know we don't want to do that yeah. because you know it's 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 poor people and it's um, it's the payments that go into the payments on our debt. It's it's, and it's all and it's also partly I think people uh, well they speak Spanish and they're not really one they're not really, they're not like well us. that's the pri- and that's that. been the primary barrier to yeah. them being integrated into the United States system and that was explicitly racism the case. and capitalism which is often you know, the same thing. It, it was a policy of like you know these are brown skinned people who speak mm-hmm. in a language that can never be integrated. This is never even an option. That was the thought for years right but you know I, I, it's that's the thing that pisses me off most about it yeah more oh, no, than anything uh, else racism, that right. you know but i think there it's complicated also by the fact that so many people in the united states mainland united states have puerto rican heritage yeah um or were born in puerto rico and now live in the united mm-hmm. states and their views are, are there's a wide spectrum as well uh but you know i the, some of the folks i've talked to since coming back have said, you know, no one here thinks about independence. I don't believe that's true. I'm sure there are plenty of people here who think about, but the people I've spoken with and they've said that, you know, there's those people who live here and they have Puerto Rican heritage feel a strong primary connection to where they live and work. And, and so they, they, they don't necessarily favor. I don't know that the consciousness for independence is that strong as much as that. I mean, I think they, they value the connection to the United States because they live in the United States and they want to have that connection to where their family lives and goes back and forth. And I'm sure there's a diversity of opinions, but I'm just saying that that's one view. And I think that the, we would never really know until we have a meaningful referendum, which I think you could say this June one will give us some inter- some useful data. They're, they're, they're about to vote on this in June. They last voted in 2012. Um, the, they've, there was a two-part ballot is very confusing very confusing and very right. uh, uh depending on how you look at it one side one another side one it, it's very convoluted yeah, it's how not it came conclusive out. no yeah i think the majority of people voted for a change in status yes. and then um when they got to the second question okay what would that status change be it was like 50 percent for statehood and 40 percent for uh, free association which is what you have in uh, micronesia and then uh, like a small, like 7% voted for independence. But if you look at the numbers, uh, there was an undervote of the, for the people who voted on the first question, 400,000 of them did not vote on the second question. And that would be enough to make the difference between free association and statehood. And what's interesting is that the party that was pushing for people, not, there was actually a conscious campaign for people to not vote on the second question. That campaign was pushed for by the Popular Democratic Party, which is the party founded by the architect of the Commonwealth. Uh-huh. So the the I think people were <clears throat> I don't I don't know if someone favors the Commonwealth how they would vote if the if that became like no longer an option. If they were then forced to choose between independence, you know, or some kind of free association and statehood, I don't know how a Commonwealth person would break that would break. I don't know if they would all go to statehood or if they would half and half. And, and if they split half and half, I think statehood wins. Now, the, the problem is it, all of this doesn't matter. Right. Because, because however they vote, it has to go to the United States Congress, who has to face the question, this Republican House, Republican Senate, Republican President, yeah. and Republican Supreme Court I was to call, that, be that called they, upon. They don't have a chance to get it It's by. like, do you want two more Democratic senators? Uh, was it? Five or seven. Five or, you know, four. I think it could be as low as four. Depends on how they apportion Congress. You know, however many they get, they're probably all going to be Democratic. The, the electoral votes probably all go Democratic. Plus, it's going to mess up the flag. 
That, uh, that was my yeah, main yeah. point. Unless we merge to Dakota. Do, I was going to say, <laughs> Northern... That's what we should be. Or make Delaware part of Pennsylvania. No, something. No. Eliminate Wyoming. You don't want Delaware? No, I don't want that toxic waste dump. Hey, right. my wife's from Delaware, buddy. His wife's from Delaware, buddy. Sorry to hear it. Ooh. Ha- and, I, and I'll bet you half <laughs> the chicken you've eaten in your life is from Delaware. I know, and I am horribly poisoned. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we merge the Dakotas, or I don't know, That's just take... Idea. just Just erase Idaho off the map. I don't mean that, like, bomb them. Just, like, stop acknowledging them. I think I said on another podcast that we should give the Palestinians Wyoming. This could be an option. I, I, I think you might want to check with them first. Well, if they if they want it, they can have it. People We're, tried this with the other side in that I conflict. Know. Could you know, Would you like to move into Siberia? And they, you know. Well, we're not using it. Right. I mean, uh, well, that's my. We cam- give that, it to maybe not the Palestinians. So the but campa- somebody who the wants it. The campaign could be why Wyoming? Right. Somebody who wants it can have it. I don't know. Um, <laughs> why not Oming? So so what is. And from from the reading I've done over the last couple of days since we decided we were going to talk about this, I kept coming back to if it, the way to solve the problem, the best way with all the options in front of us might be statehood. But that's the thing I come back to. Yeah. Um, except that it won't happen. It won't happen. Right. And also, I I don't know that. I mean, well, and and there's a very clear line too when you look at the organizations and the companies that profit off of Puerto Rico and then to whom they give money in the political sphere, people who, uh, like I think Marco Rubio was a huge recipient from hedge funds who do mm-hmm. business and were buying up debt in uh, Puerto Rico. So these people have a vested interest in Puerto Rico staying the way it is. They're paying the senators who are through campaign funds who are going to help make that decision. Therefore, I don't see... Well, here, here's, how, here's how it could change uh, in favor of statehood. Long term, if you think about what happened in Hawaii, Hawaii was another place in Alaska. These were both places where, oh, we can't let there's all these people. They're not quite white. We can't let them into the country. Over time, those places develop white majorities um, due to immigration. And what's happening in Puerto Rico now with all the people leaving and the economy being in the tank, there's also a foreclosure crisis there, just like we had for predatory loans and, and people just. A, not having jobs. It's coming back. And so these houses go up on the auction block, and just to anyone listening to this, if you're looking to invest in some property uh, and make a bunch of money, you can get land pretty cheaply in Puerto Rico, and that's what's happening. Um, people are from North America and Europe are buying properties and turning them into vacation homes or, turning them in, or they're moving there to retire, or if they can work, if they can work from home and live wherever they want to live, a lot of people are choosing to live at least the winter in the tropics, and so they're buying these properties on the beach, and they're it's gentrification on a global in a in a global marketplace, and it's another form of investor colonization. Yeah, and I can't help but think that if that trend continues, eventually, the enough entitled white people from North America live there, then they'll start demanding their, you know. Statehood, or yeah, and and that could change the situation. That simple, similar to what happened in Hawaii and Alaska, and of course those situations are unique and different in their own ways. But I think you put your finger on it, Larry, when you point out the racial component to this. And I think that if the racial component were to change, the politics of it might change. Yeah, I, I just don't know. I mean, I think if you're if there's some kind of independence or more autonomy through a free association, um, which is sort of a quasi independence or an affiliated independence, however you want to define it, um, then local people can make decisions that would benefit themselves locally, but 
global corporations always find someone who wants money that they yep. can co-opt to their own ends. And that's that's why, you know, the great wave of decolonization that happened in the 50s and 60s didn't provide economic liberation to these countries unless they decided to, unless their local leaders cut ties. And, you know, and even then, it, I mean, it, it's it's a terrible situation around the world in former colonies. And so would Puerto Rico be any different? And if so, why and how? How would that work? What would they have to do? Now, would are they able to, would they be able to vote in a majority of a, of a political party whose objective is to remove the banking system the way it is now? Well, that could be something that, I mean, if the people who are there and doing well, I imagine some of them benefit from the status quo. And that's why they're still there. Why would they go? The people who are who don't like the situation and who and who do want to stay behind, I believe that's the big political divide coming down the pike is, you know, voting for people who will resist the junta versus people who will enable the junta. And I believe the new governor, the new uh, territorial governor of Puerto Rico has, has inched in that direction. That's good. Where we have to make some kind of change here because we can't pay this debt. No, it's right. not going to happen. Right. And like in 2000, so what does that mean? 2009, 2010, Iceland decided to default on their debt instead of taking the IMF loans. But Iceland is a austerity. sovereign country. Right? Well, yeah. And as is Portugal, which also did something some. Well, they didn't default. But no, they, and the they just, EU imposed austerity. You know? They resisted the austerity. Did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The and local Portuguese government, but not the EU imposed austerity, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a, compli- it's, it's, it's a weird situation. Yeah. It's a complicated picture in the EU. But, but yeah. Iceland not having the the colonial masters that Puerto Rico does, they did quite well for themselves. Yeah, by... The Danes are much more benign colonists, and they, yeah. they left years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so it, they, they left their umlauts and picked up and gone. Yes. So what is the likely situation now, the likely scenario. I wish I knew. I mean, I, I'm I, look, I, I don't pretend to be an expert on this. I've done, I, I had known some of the background going in and I obviously read a lot, preparing myself to go and, um, read a lot since. And I had some background knowledge, but, um, you know, it's, it's a complicated place. It's a complicated world. Uh, one thing you learn, I, I think that anyone who has half a brain that was it, you know, studied history in college learns, Predicting the future is a game for fools. Um, you know, so they. I know what I would like to see happen, which is uh, the Puerto Rican people being able to decide for themselves what their fate would be, um, and I would support whatever they decide. What that you know, I mean, my job is to be an ally and support what they want. Sure. Um, in a global system of capitalism, it's very it it makes everything much more difficult. So I think. The people I spoke to would like to see an independent socialist Puerto Rico. I mean, there's still a lot of affection for the um, the initial phases of the Cuban Revolution before the before the Soviets essentially took over. Um, there's a lot of nostalgia for the initial phases of the Sandinista Revolution, and and you know these were positive, progressive times where good things happened. Um, you know, maybe not every, not to everyone, right? I mean, I'm sure it probably was really traumatic when you lost your slaves, but um, I was actually uh, my know. wife and I were talking about Cuba last night, and we were talking about how there's all these people in Florida who were basically white people who lived in Cuba who were the colonial masters, mm-hmm. and they have these stories of them fleeing. And then there was that Bacardi commercial where they're like, "We used to, we fled the Cuban Revolution," and it's like, "Well, yeah, you were kicked out because you were fucking <laughs> assholes. Yeah. You well, were the worst human right. beings on earth." 
But so the thing is, is that both of those revolutions, which had such promise initially, yes. the Nicaraguan Revolution and the Cuban Revolution, they both kind of went down a bad path. And, um, and of course, there's also the Venezuelan situation, which is entirely different, which we could talk about. And it's, That's it, a whole other podcast. It all goes down to the, like the crony aspect of capitalism, how it just, you can give a little bit more to your friends and then you're just giving a little bit more and a little bit more and everybody's getting a little bit and then people are getting a little bit less and then all of a sudden there's nothing left. Well, and also it's important to realize that no country is an, it exists in isolation. You know, the French yeah. Revolution couldn't happen because every other country in Europe saw it as a threat and it caused yep. years of warfare and eventually a dictatorship. The Russian Revolution was invaded from all sides and... Yep imposed a wartime mentality that I would say kind of poisoned their more noble ambitions. And the Latin American revolutions were no different. I think, mm -hmm. you know, every time you try to assert radical change in one country, it, it, it doesn't, the, it doesn't go unnoticed elsewhere. And so the other players get involved, get... whether it be by financing Contras or um, by, you know, invading the Bay of Pigs or yep. like the, what the Soviets did offering protection. Because God forbid then, it works. <laughs> Yeah, or they, you know, God for, well, yeah, God forbid it works. But <laughs> another power might come in to offer protection and then wind up dominating your politics and, and micromanaging in a way that benefits them, mm -hmm. you know, the, the Soviet-style imperialism. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you have a tough challenge for any small impoverished country that wants to assert itself and make a great change. And so I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what a positive path forward would look like. I can just hope for one. And, um, and yeah, if there's a way that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to continue to learn. There, there's interesting, there's a local network um, that, was, that had a workshop recently to educate people about this. Uh, the Philly Camden, I think it was the Philadelphia Camden Boricua Network. And it was, um, some of my, I wasn't able to go because I had a family thing. Uh, there's a, a friend of mine in the Democratic Socialists of America uh, is doing some research into this. I don't know what this group is or whether they're worth engaging with or not, but to the extent that there are local groups that are mm -hmm. that that I find myself uh, in affinity with, I'd like to um, learn more what they're trying to do locally and see if I can, you know, if I can jump in and help. It's, mm -hmm. I'll spread myself even thinner. Why not? <laughs> Why not? And that's what Scott did on his spring break. Yeah. I mean, I also like ate a pig's ear and went to a wedding and went swimming in waterfalls and pig's watched... ear? Yeah, it's oh, good. Oh, it's the best part of the pig. Well, jaw. Well, the jaw's all right. Yeah, jaw's good. But the pig, the ear, come on. Uh, the, the, the crunch bit and, and like the real like fleshy taste that it has is amazing. No, I don't... Fleshy, not yeah. a... No, it's, not being an appetizing word, but... but the cheeks are, are all The cheeks excellent. are that fatty, yeah, yeah. juicy... Ooh. See, I... Uh... I've given up cow and pig. Oh, that's good. Because Why? it's an environmental impact. Or? They have personalities. Oh, and yeah. I can't eat animals. They do with have personalities. They do have personalities. And so you you're know gonna, what? So if you pigs see are jerks. No, they're not. Yes, they're they very are. Friendly. No, they're very smart. And they're very friendly, but they're jerks. How can you be a friendly jerk? Lots of people are friendly jerks. Bob uh, Brady is a friendly jerk. I'm a friendly <laughs> jerk. Yeah. Right. Hell of a handshake. Well, Ed Rendell, friendly jerk. Yeah, okay. Okay, I'll go with you on that. All right, all right, you're right. But I wouldn't need them. That being said, <laughs> so I, if you made Rendell Scrapple, I'd be fine with it. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, on that note, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll uh, see you next week. I love you.